Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Yaki Silias. Dr. Silias is the founder of the Institute for Security Studies in Pretoria. He served until 2015 as the executive director of the Institute and now serves as chairperson of the ISS Board of Trustees and head of African Futures and Innovation Program, a program of the ISS. We're going to speak today about Africa's development trajectory. Yaki has been leading for the African Futures and Innovation Program, a big body of research that forecasts scenarios for Africa's development trajectory, Africa's future, based on a complex intersection of thousands of data points. So I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into that with him. Yaki is a pretty prolific author. He's written three books, Fate of the Nation, which was a bestseller in 2017, Africa First, Igniting a Growth Revolution, which he published in 2020, and his final tomb, The Future of Africa, Challenges and Opportunities, a book I've read and I have become used to carrying this book around with me because it's so rich with useful data I'm able to refer to on a fairly regular basis. I think I've mentioned that to you, Yaki. So Yaki, welcome to our show and I'm thrilled that we've managed to find a date in your busy schedule in which to speak to you. Marcus, thanks very much. And thanks for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to interact and to share some of our views with you. Great. I usually start by asking our guests to tell us a bit more about themselves, where they grew up, what they studied, the career choices they've made, and the role that you perform today at the ISS. Marcus, thanks. Actually, I come from a very nice town in South Africa known as Stellenbosch. My dad was at the university and I grew up as a kid. I was mad about guns and I eventually ended up joining the military. I resigned for political reasons in the late 80s and became involved in the settlement process in South Africa, which led eventually to a trip to Lusaka and various engagements with the ANC and the establishment of what was initially known as the Institute for Defense Policy in 1990. That changed its name to the Institute for Security Studies in 1996, and that's more or less where the Institute comes from. We are today a pan-African institute, the largest non-profit think tank on peace and security on the continent, with offices in Pretoria, South Africa, Nairobi, Addis, Dakar, and a few satellite offices. So our work has changed, where my original interests come from military stuff. I'm a political scientist. I have a PhD in strategic studies and worked while I stepped down as executive director of the Institute in 2015, worked very much on African peace and security issues, particularly with the Organization of African Unity and its successor, the Africa Union. And it's that really that inspired my work on long-term development stuff, because the more you look at peace and security issues, well, I felt it was like the movie Groundhog Day. You sort of do the same thing day after day until you eventually ask yourself, but what can be done to deal with the root causes, the drivers of instability? And for many years, 
The final years when I was executive director of the Institute, I started dabbling in long-term forecasting. And when I stepped down in 2015, I got a Fulbright Fellowship to go to the University of Denver. And we use their forecasting platform known as International Futures, which is very heavily data-driven, now to run the work of the African Futures and Innovation Program at the Institute. So that's where I come from. That's the work that I do. And we, in June of last year, a president Ramaphosa was kind enough to officiate at the launch of a very large website that we've built, which looks at the long-term future of every African country and region across various scenarios and dimensions. And that sort of remains the basis of much of our work. Some of it is an update of the book that you refer to, Africa First, which has gone through various iterations, but there's much more on the website. So we'll include the links to the website in our show notes so our audience can view the site there, really rich with data. Tell us a bit more about that project, if you will. Tell us about how you've gone about casting Africa's likely development trajectory. And speak, if you may, to what are the most likely scenarios and some of the major factors that are driving those scenarios, please. Marcus, so when you look long term at Africa... And you look firstly back at the start of the independence period in the early 1960s, and you then look forward. Our general forecasts are done out till 2043, which is the end of the third 10-year implementation plan of Agenda 2063, which we use to frame our work. And you look at one indicator, the one that I generally use is GDP per capita, which comes in for a lot of criticism, but it remains very useful. Then you see from the 1960s and even out till 2043, that the gap between average incomes in Africa or GDP per capita and that of the rest of the world continues to widen. So things are improving in Africa, but more slowly than in the rest of the world. In other words, Africa on this key indicator of GDP per capita is falling further and further behind. And that really begs the question, so what can be done to change that around? So what we've done in our work is done a forecast and single aggressive or ambitious forecast for each of originally 11, now eight sectors. So we look firstly at where Africa is headed, what we refer to as its current path forecast. It's known in the business world as the business as usual forecast, which is more or less current policies carrying on. And then we look at, for example, what is the impact on better governance on the long-term future of Africa? And we model that. Ten years ago, I would have said that's impossible, but you can look at that. Then we look at the impact of demographic dividend and better health outcomes. What is the impact on that on Africa? An agricultural revolution, more and better quality education, a manufacturing transition. We look at the full implementation of the continental free trade area. We look at the impact of large infrastructure build and leapfrogging on the future of Africa, more inward financial flows. And these now eight sectors we then combine and we say, what is Africa's development potential? What is the maximum that Africa can achieve in terms of, for example, GDP per capita and reductions in extreme poverty, which are the two measures we generally use? So in a different way, what we've done is we've modeled Africa's development potential. You know, when you look at long-term futures, there are different ways of doing this. Many analysts do sort of blue skies thinking where they ask, where would we like to be? We do some of that, but in actual fact, we ask the question, what is possible? And when you use a large data sets and you use data to inform your forecasting, that has a pushback or a constraining effect. So I started off by sketching a picture 
of a widening gap between GDP per capita in Africa and the rest of the world. Now, when you do all of these things that I've spoken about, better governance, get to a demographic dividend, education, and so on and so forth, you see that towards the end of our forecast horizon, 2043, you start marginally closing the gap, what that tells you, between Africa and the rest of the world. What that tells you is that the challenges that the continent faced, they are not challenges that are of a decade or two decades. They are really challenges that are of a multi-generational nature. And Africa has to do all of these things if it really wants to start closing the gap with the rest of the world. And even then, it will take a long, long time. So that's the work that we do and the time that we spend on all of this kind of stuff. Thank you, Yaki. We're going to dig into some of this research in a bit more detail now. But before we do, and I'm drawing this data from your excellent book, Africa Tomorrow, and for the benefit of our audience, you referred to the growing divergence between Africa and the rest of the world in terms of GDP. But you also in your book refer to it in terms of poverty levels. And I thought it would be just instructive to point out the data that you've reported and published. So whilst poverty levels have been, in fact, declining in Africa, and that should be a source of relief, the truth is that these gains are being eroded by the rapid population growth. And by 2040, your analysis shows that more than 486 million Africans will still live in extreme poverty. That's compared with 455 million today. In relative terms, that's poverty increasing in Africa, which should be a cause of great concern to us all. And as you point out, the delta between Africa and the rest of the world is increasing because in the rest of the world, poverty will decline to about 116 million people by 2040. And that's down from 286 million million people in 2019, as you point out. With this data, it's hard to contest the correlation between high birth rates and poverty. In your book, you have an entire chapter devoted to birth rates, which I recall is entitled Getting to Africa's Demographic Dividend. You point out that one in six people today are African, and under some of the scenarios that you represent, that proportion relative to the rest of the world may increase to one in four in the decades ahead. I think many economists see that as a great boon, and I know that for the last decade, many of the conversations that I've been privy to and participating in talk about Africa's demographic dividend, the great opportunity that this big consumer class represents for consumer goods companies, but this big and growing labor force represents for manufacturing and industrialization opportunities. I wanted to point out the corollary to that or the contrarian argument. And I'm a friend to Charles Robertson, who's chief economist at Renaissance Capital. And he's done quite a lot of work and is quite vocal in pointing out the impediments to economic growth that high population growth represents. He states specifically that countries with high fertility rates never get rich. It's a complex and sensitive subject. But I wondered if I could ask you, Yaki, given the amount of time, effort, energy, attention, and the data that you've got at your fingertips, what do you see as the optimal demographic scenario for Africa to accelerate economic growth and reduce poverty over the next decades? So Africa, as you point out, is only going very slowly through its demographic transition. Now, when we look at economic theory, economic growth is the product of labor, capital, and technology. For low-income countries, the major contributor to growth comes from the contribution that labor makes to economic growth. Particularly for Africa's 23 low and 23 low middle-income countries, that's very true. But if you look at the high dependency ratios in Africa, that is the ratio of children below 15 and elderly above 65 to our working age population, 
that therefore is the population 15 to 64. We have such a high dependency ratio, so many children relative to our working age population, that you can't build schools fast enough. You can't roll out health and education fast enough. Countries grow when their population pyramid doesn't look like the Eiffel Tower, thin at the top with a broad base at the bottom, but looks mm. more like the Taj Mahal. It's nice and fat around the middle. That big belly around the middle is the working age people 15 to 64. The larger that is relative to your children and elderly, the more rapid you grow because labor makes the largest contribution to economic growth at low levels of development. In actual fact, according to the World Bank, at low levels of development, labor can contribute up to half of economic growth. For Africa to grow, it must improve the ratio of working age people to dependents. Africa on average, and we've done a lot of work on this, enters its potential demographic dividend in 2051. That is 30 years almost from where we are today. From that point, 2051 onwards, we potentially are in a demographic sweet spot. But until 2051, our very large dependent population, mostly kids, is a drag on growth. Second point to make is that Africa will peak at very low levels of working age people to dependents. China and the Asian tigers peaked at a ratio of 2.8 working age people 15 to 64, to every one dependent. Africa will peak at about two. Now, that difference of 2.8 to two may not sound much, but when you're speaking of several billion people, it makes a huge difference. So Africa must work very hard to advance its demographic dividend and to improve the ratio of working age people to dependents because labor makes the most contribution to economic growth at low levels of development. And there are many things that can be done to achieve this. Of course, the deep driver of fertility is female education, but that takes decades. Much more shorter term impact is simply making modern contraceptives available to African women who would like it. The research is very clear, and that is that the demand for contraceptives in Africa is significantly high, but the supply is very low. There are, of course, many other measures that reduce total fertility, urbanization rates, formalization, education, and so on and so forth. But in the short term, the provision of modern contraceptives is the most powerful way. And of course, that requires conversations about the burden that our very rapid population growth places on the provision of infrastructure and so on. And that is, in a sense, a political project. African leaders need to engage and to talk about the importance of smaller families and all the associated stuff, because without getting on top of our demographic dividend, it is almost impossible for Africa to grow rapidly enough. At the moment, Africa is about 3% of the world's economy, but we are about 17% of the world's population. So those mm -hmm. African leaders that argue that rapid population growth is a way to improve economic growth, no, it's actually quite the reverse. What you need to do is grow the size of your labor force relative to your dependents. And the only way to do that scientifically, technically, is to reduce total fertility rates. But it's not a social or a cultural argument. All societies have gone through this demographic transition. And because we are the most rural continent in the world, Africa is going through this transition much more slowly than any other country or region. Fascinating. You mentioned that it's not just a social or cultural topic, it's 
the fundamental economic topic. Yes. What efforts are underway that you're aware of to bring this onto the agenda of African leadership so that there's a greater appreciation for the benefits of managing population growth to stimulate economic growth? It's a very sensitive subject because in the past, yeah. very often, African leaders have seen this as an attempt to limit population growth, somehow mm. a racist or a racial argument. It's nothing of that. It's purely an economic argument. You can look at the ratio of working age people to dependents in China and the Asian tigers, and we've done a lot of work on this. And you see that one of the major factors for China and the Asian tigers, amazing growth, was that they peaked at a ratio of 2.8 working age people to every dependent. And as I I said, Africa only gets to its peak much lower at 2 or 2.1 in 2050. And that explains a lot. Now, that conversation is slowly changing, but you have leaders in Uganda and previously in Tanzania who make the argument that having more kids is good for economic growth. It is good in the sense that it increases the size of the African economy, but it does nothing for GDP per capita or incomes. And yeah. that's the difference that we have to make. So that debate is slowly changing. It's no longer such a sensitive issue because I think the debate is increasingly being led by Africans who realize that the very rapid population growth in Africa does not seem to improve incomes. And it is incomes that we want to change. It is poverty that we want to reduce. And that's not possible with our current population growth rates. You know, Africa has to grow at 15, 16% a year, per year, decade after decade with our current fertility rates. That's just not possible. It's not going to happen. We can maybe get to 8, 9% a year if we're lucky. And even that would require that labor makes a much larger contribution to growth than it is at the moment. And that is only possible if we reduce fertility rates. Really interesting. I'd mentioned earlier that Charles Robertson at Renaissance Capital has been a proponent of managing population growth and the arguments that he points in relation to China. Are there any specifics around China's one-child policy that you've focused on in the research that you've done and assimilating lessons from that? I would say China's one-child policy is not a model for Africa, and we should avoid that comparison because it creates the impression that somehow somebody is going to place limits on the right of people and families to have children. That's not the intention at all. And most African countries are democracies. They may be nominal democracies, but this is not authoritarian China, where some central authority is going to say that you can only have one child. Africans have the right to have as many children that they want, but they need to recognize the benefits of smaller families. And they are. One of the reasons why people had large families in agricultural or traditional society was because they needed labor. And what is happening is Africa is urbanizing and many more kids survive. These are natural processes, but I think one must be careful of bringing the one-child policy into this debate because it creates a vision of some central control over fertility, which I don't think Africans would accept. Yes, and I agree with you there. But one of the benefits of the one-child policy was that Chinese households had more savings that then could be used by the state to borrow, raise capital for infrastructure, stimulate Correct. the economy, build a manufacturing sector, and was Correct. really an important component in China's amazing economic yes. development over the last 30 years. Very much so, which is why I make this point. When you look at the peak of 2.8 working age people to dependence for both China and the Asian tigers, it explains a lot about their economic growth because they were able to benefit from what you now referring to. You get the first, the second, and even a third demographic dividend. And the China was able to benefit from the first and the second demographic dividend through exactly the savings and the investments that unlock in terms of allowing productive investment in the economy. 
Thanks, Yucky. I'm going to turn now, if you're happy for me to, to geopolitics and global competition. For six months now, and maybe a bit longer, and almost without respite, African nations have been receiving delegations, high-level delegations from all over the world. Today, as we speak, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State for the United States, is in Ethiopia. And he has made no secret of his motivation for being there, which is to reset relations with Ethiopia, yes, but also to counter growing Chinese influence on the continent. China's Africa's largest trading partner has been for more than a decade. It's also significantly Africa's largest single official bilateral lender. With this growing competition, and I mentioned China and the US there, but we've had many delegations from European nations. The French president himself was here on the continent in the last fortnight. In fact, he was where I am today in Libreville, Gabon, just 10 days ago for the One Forest Summit. It's pretty evident that competition between competing global powers is hotting up, and it's largely but not exclusively as a consequence of the imperative around the global energy transition, the competition for critical minerals and natural resources. Africa has huge natural resource wealth, both in terms of its minerals and oil and gas, but also renewable energy potential, and even its carbon market potential with vast savannas and forests and wetlands and marshlands, all capturing carbon on behalf of humanity. I wanted to get your perspective on how you feel this competition might play out. Under one bright scenario, there are huge dividends for Africa to reap from surging demand for commodities like copper, cobalt, platinum, nickel, lithium, and other battery metals that the continent has in abundance. But under another scenario, it's possible to envisage that Africa is victim of intense competition between global superpowers with all the attendant consequences that this might have for peace, stability, democracy, human rights. And within narrative media, I've noticed an uptick over the last six months in the references to a new Cold War emerging. That's obviously of great concern to all of us. Yaki, I wonder which of these scenarios seems most plausible to you? The bright scenario that I briefly painted or the more gloomy scenario that takes us back to a previous decade or a previous generation when there was poor consequences or bad negative consequences for African countries of this global competition. Marcus, we've actually done a significant amount of work on this, which is not in the book uh, that you are referring to. It's up on our yeah. website. It's known as Africa and the World. And what we've done is we've modeled the impact of four different worlds on Africa's development potential. Remember that we started off and you asked me what I was doing, and I explained that we have modeled Africa's development potential. And we've done that for each African country out till 2043, and there's up to 11 scenarios per country. Massive amount of data. So we've modeled what we refer to as Africa's development potential in a sustainable world. But the world is changing. In a section on our website, quite a developed section known as Africa and the World, we have said, so this is Africa's potential in a sustainable world. What happens in a so-called divided world, a world mm -hmm. at war, or a growth world? And we've used the standard X and Y metrics to create these four worlds. And in summary, we think that the current trajectory, as you intimate, is more likely towards this divided world scenario. And we've modeled this. And we think that, for example, we've modeled the sustainable world, best world for Africa. Compared mm -hmm. to that sustainable world, Africa would, by 2043, in the divided world, emit 23% more carbon. GDP per capita would be 17% lower, and extreme poverty would be 54% higher. 
the situation in the world at war is even worse. So when the elephants fight, the grass suffer. Africa will again suffer from the extent to which global competition, bipolarity on steroids is coming to Africa. Let's just take one example. Africa suffers from a huge debt crisis following COVID-19. And a number of countries are severely indebted. And it's almost impossible to think that the continent can really develop with those levels of debt. But debt, instead of the international community coming together, as they did with HIPIC and these measures, and providing debt relief, debt has become an instrument of competition between China and particularly the World Bank and the international financial institutions. And instead of the international community looking at the challenges of extreme poverty, you pointed out that that's largely reflected in sub-Saharan Africa, we are going to suffer because the international community is not going to be able to come together on debt relief in Africa because it's so busy speaking about the debt trap diplomacy and using I wouldn't call it false media, but attacking one another and fighting over the impact of Ukraine, that Africa's real development needs are are falling by the wayside. So the rising global tensions have a huge impact on the continent, and Africa will again suffer through bipolarity on steroids. And to be frank, from an African point of view, when we look at something like the war in Ukraine, the West wants Africa to take a position. But the reality is Africa can't make a choice. We need China. We need Europe. We need the United States. We don't have a dog in the fight. In a sense, our interests are served by staying outside of that fight. Our interests, on actual fact, is in a rapprochement, particularly between China and the United States. The idea somehow that the United States is going to constrain China's growth trajectory, I think, is ill-placed. It's not going to do that. We start off this whole section, and we've done a lot of work on this, looking at where power, material, soft, and other power is going globally. And the locus of growth is shifting to Asia. Africa, as you pointed out, China is our major trading partner. It's the only country that really invests in Africa. But for all of that, Africa needs Europe. It needs the US. It needs all of those partners if it is to move towards a more positive growth trajectory. Thanks, Yaki. In your book, I think I recall you stating that in the future, China may look to become a majority shareholder in some of the assets of African countries that it has made big loans to and as an alternative to repayment for those African nations. Are we starting to see that happen? I've not seen any indication yet of China forgiving debt. No, it hasn't happened. Very many academics and commentators that are comparing China's approach to Africa's debt with that of the West. The reality is that increasingly most of Africa's debt is held by private banks and not by China or by the West, which is different to what it was with HIPIC and so on in the 1980s and 1990s, where Western governments could come together and argue for a haircut. Today, the Chinese say, but the World Bank's got to take a haircut. The World Bank says China's got to take a haircut. And of course, none of them can harness the private capital. So it's become a very complicated picture and nobody is in actual fact moving. All that's happening is a number of African countries, Zambia, Ethiopia, and others are facing huge problems and now cannot repay their debts. So I think we need to step back from the political arguments around this and go back in a sense to the technical arguments. And this is where Africa has become a victim of great power competition in this one area, debt, that I think if we don't address that. Africa requires capital to develop. It will always have high debt levels. If Mm -hmm. you look at a country like Ethiopia, how it has managed to develop, even with what many commentators consider to be excessive debt, but it's managed that. 
And I think that's a story that's going to also be true for much of Africa. So I think one must step back from the politicized social media arguments about debt trap diplomacy and so on and so forth. China has forgiven some debt, but it's mostly relatively small amounts of historical debt to small countries. And I think that there is room for quite a leap in Africa's debt levels, China and the international community and the rest of the international community. But it will take a very different mindset to what we are seeing is developing now with regard to the competition, this divided world that I'm referring to. And Africans will need to find a different approach and the international community a different approach to this current bigger than neighbor kind of policies that we are seeing. I've been watching quite closely the Zambian government's efforts to restructure their debt. Yeah. Painfully slow. And the finance minister made a statement just a couple of weeks ago expressing his pure frustration with the slow progress that he's been able to make. And this is a government where there's a lot of goodwill towards Akayinde Chilema's administration and a government that has made restructuring its debt a top priority and by all accounts has been able to manage dialogues with both the IMF, China and... The issue for a country like Zambia is simply that it can't bring the Chinese, the IMF, the World Bank, the Paris Club and everybody together because the debt is highly fragmented. And this means that Zambia is now, in a sense, a victim of this emerging bipolarity. And that, I think, reflects very accurately the problem that the new, much more complicated world presents to Africa and present efforts to reduce debt levels, to get debt under sustainable management and move forward with poverty alleviation, which is literally at the moment, if you look at the amounts of money that are sucked into debt repayment, this is simply not possible. So big problems that are being accentuated by this trend towards a divided world. Thanks, Yaki. Really instructive. I'm going to keep to the subject of financing. You reference in the book that I've kept referring to during this interview, the cost of capital and that African nations and African project developers are paying punitive interest rates on debt compared to other regions of the world like South America. Interestingly, and I say interestingly because this is a subject I discussed with Rita Madeira at the International Energy Agency just a few weeks ago for this podcast, you point out that it's largely a function of negative views on Africa that dominate Western rating agencies. It's the same point that Al Gore made at COP28 when he pointed out for the audience that Nigeria has to pay almost seven times higher interest rates for borrowing for a solar project in the nation than the equivalent interest rates in an OECD. CD country. We had Moki Makura on the show, who's the CEO of Africa No Filter, who's leading work with a broad coalition of mainstream media, donors, philanthropic foundations to try and address the sort of negative bias that you reference in your book, these negative views that are a function of how rating agencies in particular, but global investors have tended to view the continent. It's a big and complex issue, and I don't want to overly simplify it, but I wonder if there was anything that you could share with us on this point you referenced. The essential point that you make is very accurate and true, and that is that Africa pays punitive rates because private capital which is where the kind of capital that we are trying to attract, which is from the West, private capital is scared. It yeah. goes for countries that provide the lowest risk. And it's very difficult to see how Africa is able to attract private capital, given the poor image that the continent has. And we often compare Africa with Latin America or South America. And we look at the fact that return on investment in Africa is significantly higher than in South America. Yet Africans pay punitive rates. The reason they pay 
way is because the continent is seen as a source of humanitarian challenges and instability and violence and poor governance and corruption and so on and so forth, which is not that different to many Asian countries and many countries in South and Central America and never mind the Middle East. But Africa really suffers from a bad image. And of course, the continent is treated as one. Some countries are very stable. You have some countries that have the highest growth rates in the world, but because of the lack of knowledge of the continent, it's sort of one size fits all. And that points to one of the important ways to deal with this. First, dealing with Africa's poor image is, of course, primarily something that Africans need to take ownership of and change. But it is an issue where greater visibility greater understanding of Africa can do much more. And China does much better in this than much of the West. You know the story that the Chinese foreign minister every year comes to Africa. It's his first trip. Now we've seen Biden and the first lady, and I don't know whom else, come and visit Africa. What is needed is consistent engagement, trade fairs, study permits, visitor program, engagement to understand the opportunities that are in Africa. Africa is the last growth frontier globally. Growth is slowing down in China. It is moving to South and Southeast Asia. It will come to India, and then it will be Africa's turn. If you take a long-term view, the time to invest in Africa is now. Get a foot in the door. This is where the future market lies, and you can get in at rock-bottom investments. Of course, we in Africa, we need to get our investment climate predictable. You would, Marcus, you would know the stories in particular of South African companies that have sought to invest in countries like Kenya and Nigeria and burnt their fingers every time because the rules are constantly being changed. What an investor wants, it wants stability. It need not be the best policies, but as long as they are predictable. And he knows. And so there's a lot that Africa can do to change perceptions on the continent. But it also needs, in particular, the partnership with private capital in the West, because that's where the dam of investment money is. That if you can unlock that, can really change Africa's development prospects. So lots of practical things that can be done, but it's all about understanding and visibility and getting to know your client. Fantastic. It was great to hear you make all of those points. I'm going to turn to my last question for you. And it's a question that I ask all of our guests to tell us what you're reading at the moment or in the age of podcasts, what you're listening to or what you might recommend. Well, in the age of podcasts, my favorite podcast, without any doubt, is the China and Africa podcast that is done by colleagues. One of them is in Vietnam and one is sitting in Bromfontein in South Africa. An amazing podcast to understand China in Africa. So that's my number one podcast, definitely. I listen to many. (laughs) With regard to books, I'm reading two books at the moment. One is Trade Wars or Class Wars by Matthew Klein and Michael Pettis. I've just started that. And the other one is Youthquake, which is about why African demography matters by Edward Pace. I'm about a third through that. I spend a lot of my time reading articles and news pieces like you following what's happening on Mm -hmm. the continent. But when it comes to podcasts and books, I guess those are the two. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, thank you for sharing that with our audience. It's been a thoroughly enjoyable conversation for me. I've learned a lot. I'm never going to lose the image of both the Eiffel Tower and the Taj Mahal that you painted so clearly in reference to demographics. Really helpful. Bipolarity on steroids is the term you used when reflecting geopolitical competition. 
at the moment. And it's been great to hear your views on debt and on the cost of capital, importantly. Thanks so much, Yaki, for being with us today. Congratulations on the phenomenal project that you're leading, African Futures Innovation Programme. We'll put the link to your excellent site in the show notes. And it just leaves me to thank you immensely for being with us today. Marcus, thank you very much for this opportunity and appreciate the interest on the continent and trying to move things forward. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.